what are we going to worship during Advent? That's really the question that we want to ask this morning. And you might picture your approach to the Advent season as existing somewhere on a spectrum, where on one side would be the uh, I'll just give in to it all approach. You'll spend the next four weeks at the mall and on Amazon.com and will come out of hiding only to make a public appearance here at the corner of Green Bay and Laurel on Christmas Eve. On the other side of the spectrum is the Christian Grinch approach. You will spend the next four weeks putting up Keep Christ in Christmas yard signs all over town and scolding your friends and family for selling out to consumer Christmas. Now, I'm going to spend much of the next 20 minutes pushing you in one direction on the spectrum, toward the Christian Grinch side. But before I do, I want to offer an encouragement not to go all the way to the edge of the spectrum. I read uh, an article earlier this week by a pastor that I admire, and I quickly realized that the sermon I was writing this morning was uh, going to fall under his umbrella of criticism. And he says this, "'Tis the season to be jolly, and tis the season for Christians to be mad. Do your kids like Santa? Get rid of him, pronto. He's fake. He's not the point. He's obese, and his name is an anagram for Satan.'" Do you buy toys for your kids? Stop it. They don't need them. Are you into Christmas trees? So were the pagans. Forget about it. Do you parents spend too much money on the grandchildren? Shame on them for not buying a cow in your name. Happy holidays? Not in my face, you don't. Merry Christmas, you Walmart greeter. Now, much of what we discuss over the next four weeks as a part of the Advent Conspiracy will admittedly contain a criticism of some traditions that our culture values. Traditions like Santa and Christmas trees and, more than anything, uh, buying lots and lots of stuff. And this morning, as we ask the question, what are we going to worship during Advent? I want to make sure we approach the issue positively rather than negatively as the Christian Grinch. That our approach to the Advent conspiracy would be to first think about Advent in terms of who or what is the ultimate object of our worship, Jesus Christ, and to think about how amazing and worthy of our worship he is, rather than approaching Advent first by saying, bad, 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 your Christmas traditions are satanic and selfish and the like. So our goal is first to show Jesus for who he really is, which will then reveal competing objects of worship for what they really are. If Jesus is up here, then the rest, by necessity, is down here, because they could never compete with this. That being said, let's ask the question then, what exactly do we worship during Advent? And I want to describe uh, one possibility. It's a scenario that uh, I first heard at a lecture a couple of weeks ago that Devin and I attended. Imagine that it's Sunday morning and you're pulling into your place of weekly worship. Unlike Christchurch HP, there is a parking lot, and quite a large one at that. The fact that this is a popular worship destination is immediately clear from the rows and rows of SUVs and minivans and the like you see surrounding your destination as far as the eye can see. 
After parking, you get out of the car and proceed toward the entrance along with hundreds of other pilgrims who are arriving at the same time. Indeed, thousands will be making the same pilgrimage as you today. As you near the entrance, you're impressed by the grandeur and the scope of the concrete and the freshly cleaned and shimmering glass. In the entryway, you observe banners and flags drawing you in, texts and images that are familiar to you, whether or not you've been to worship at this particular location before. You've seen these same symbols on many other occasions over the years and across the country. Once inside, you immediately see right in front of you a large map intended to help seekers plan their worship experience. But while you stop and look at the map, it's clear that most of the pilgrims do not. They are regulars, speeding past the map, knowing exactly where they want to go. As you step further in and look up, there is a feeling of transcendence. Pointed windows at the ceilings allow light to flow in and fill the space. Everything points up and out. As you glance behind you, you can only vaguely make out the parking lot anymore at this point. You'll worry about finding your car later on, after it's all over. But for now, you forge ahead. But rather than a straight shot, the floor plan is laid out in loosely connecting octagons, inviting you to wander, to escape the predictability and drudgery of the world outside. The liturgical year is always on full display here, but at this time of year, the colors and the symbols and the images are more treasured than at any other time. To your right and to your left and even down the middle of the nave lie endless chapels, some large, some very small, inviting the pilgrims to come inside. At the entrance to each chapel are windows, not filled with simple stained glass like we have here, but with three-dimensional lifelike icons inspiring us to imitate them, to join with them in pursuing the good life. Well, as you pause to look at one of these chapels, you're personally invited to come in, to taste and see the beauty that lies within. You're greeted by some kind of welcomer who offers to shepherd you through your experience that morning but who also has the wisdom to allow you to explore on your own terms, to lose yourself in the space. Perhaps on this particular morning, you're open to surprise. How might the Spirit lead you? Maybe to an experience you never would have anticipated. Or perhaps on this morning, your worship is quite intentional. You've come prepared exactly for this moment, knowing what you're searching for and determined to find it at all costs. And after the search ends, finally, with the holy object in hand, you proceed to the altar, the consummation of your morning worship, where the priest, who will preside over the transaction, greets you. In a moment, you'll leave the space, not just with a good feeling about what you've experienced there this morning, but with something concrete and tangible, a piece of the good life held in your hand. You'll make your sacrifice, your donation, receiving in return that precious item wrapped in the colors and symbols of the season. 
And finally, you're dismissed with a benediction from the priest. Go in peace. Thanks for shopping. Happy holidays. Well, before we move on and examine uh, a second competing kind of worship experience, I want to first anticipate an objection, which is that what we're doing here in church this morning is worship, but if I were to go to the mall instead, like I have just described, obviously, that would be something completely different. So before going on, we need to ask, what is worship, and in what sense can going to the mall be a worship experience? And the mall, of course, is only one example. It's easy for me to pick on the mall because I hate the mall, but we all participate in many different cultural rituals similar to this. Sporting events, of course, would probably be the other really good example, especially for us men. And I want to suggest this morning that just because something doesn't look like worship at church doesn't mean it's not a worship experience. The authors of uh, The Advent Conspiracy, the uh, small group material that we're focusing on during the season of Advent, they say the things we desire are the things that we worship. The things we desire are the things that we worship, which means we need to take a step back and ask, how are our desires shaped? And I think there's a real connection here between the Seven Deadly Sins series that we're coming out of and the Advent Conspiracy that we're beginning this morning. Remember, Mike's argument about the seven sins was not that they were deadly in and of themselves, as if uh, you had too much turkey on Thursday or whatever, you were bound for hell or anything like that. The argument was that the seven sins develop habits and ruts in our lives that point us, that lead our lives eventually to death, to spiritual death. In other words, the more I practice the habit of lust, the more I will desire explicit sexual images and experiences and the like. But the more I practice the habit of purity, the more those same images and experiences will be appalling to me. We train our desires by our habits and our practices. So the three-step argument this morning is basically that habits and practices lead us to desire and love certain things, which in turn lead us to uh, worship. We can train our hearts what to love and what to worship by the kind of habits and rituals that we do in our lives. And so... You can see, of course, where this is going. The consumer habits and experience of Advent create rituals in our lives that shape what we ultimately desire, which in turn lead us to worship. We train ourselves to desire the good life as it's defined by the mall and by consumerism and materialism. As we participate in the rituals of the season, we catch a vision for what really might give our lives meaning and purpose. Our imaginations are constantly poked and prodded. What would it be like to walk out the door and see that Lexus with the big red bow on it? What would it be like if my kid got the Furby or the Tickle Me Elmo that the other parents desperately wanted to give but couldn't deliver on? And so the rituals of the season stoke and 
prod our imaginations. They shape what we love. They take hold of our gut deep inside. They shape the desires of our hearts. And that which we desire is what we will worship. Now, the authors of the Advent Conspiracy focus on uh, several worship scenes. I want to just look at one very briefly from the Bible with you this morning. And that's the visit of the Magi from Matthew chapter 2. And I'm going to read for us from Matthew 2, the first 12 verses, where Matthew writes this. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea at the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he gathered together the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah... Although you are least among the clans of Judah, out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi together secretly, and he found out from them the exact time that the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem, and he said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, Report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went out ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. On coming to the house, they saw the child and his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense. And of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So, if the three step process for this morning is that habits and practices lead to desires which lead to worship, I want to look at the Magi briefly through that lens. And in particular, let's look at three things that they do, three practices that they take part in that I think you can imagine played a significant role in shaping the desires of their hearts. First, they follow a star across much of the world. This is sort of the uh, Black Friday equivalent of standing out there in line at 2 a.m., I think. They take a significant amount of time to do something that other people probably think seems crazy, (laughs) Keep in mind that just as it seems unbelievable for us that a few men would follow a star around for months and months, so to the original audience, it wouldn't have seemed like an appealing idea uh, either. It might have seemed evil or at least a little suspicious. Matthew is the only gospel writer who writes about the Magi. But remember, Matthew is writing to a primarily Jewish audience, an audience who probably would not have held foreign astrologers in very high regard, especially considering that the Hebrew Bible condemns things like divination and sorcery. 
That's why the fact that we refer to the uh, Magi as the wise men is a little bit ironic because they probably weren't intended to be seen as wise men at all, at least not until they met and worshipped Jesus. They were basically pagan, superstitious fools. But they were fools on a journey to see a king. A long, hard journey that undoubtedly tested their patience and their strength. But a journey that must also have shaped what they desired, what they longed for. Our lives have these kind of built-in rituals to help us long for consumption. Standing in a long line on Friday morning would be just one example. You can feel the anticipation, the desire of what's coming. And so our task is to develop the same kind of practices that create in us instead a longing for the true king, for Jesus. Second, the Magi are willing to confront dominant world systems. They first go to Jerusalem, of course, assuming that if they're looking for a king, they're going to find him in Herod's family. But they're open to the possibility that conventional wisdom might be wrong. And when they discover that it is wrong, they're willing to turn their backs on a dangerous, delusional maniac of a king, to reject the powerful Herod in favor of one who would instead lead his people as a shepherd. Now, certainly there was some risk in acknowledging to Herod that he was not the great king that they came looking for. And certainly that decision to take that risk further shaped their hearts and their desires. It was a resolute commitment to find the true king no matter what anybody else thought. And in the same way, I think there's a social risk for us when we turn our backs to the powerful of the world and instead seek the Messiah. Are we willing to take the risk and to confront the dominant expectations of our culture? Third, the Magi give their all. They give themselves, they bow down and worship, but they also give these uh, luxurious gifts that are fit for a king, which is yet another discipline that shapes their hearts. They give away what otherwise would have been valuable to them, taking worship away from those objects of value and redirecting the worship instead to Jesus. And in the same way, if our practice and our habit is to give away what is valuable rather than clinging to it or seeking it out, that is a practice that will shape us. So the main question this morning is not uh, whether the Magi are worshiping Jesus wisely. I think we probably would all agree that they are. And the main question is not even whether an obsession with consumption is unwise worship. I think we all would agree that it is. The interesting and potentially disruptive question is, are the two mutually exclusive? During Advent, can you worship both at the mall and at the nativity? Or is it true, like our Advent conspiracy authors say, that each time we try to meet our desire for fulfillment at the mall, we take another step away from the nativity. In other words, that it's impossible to do both. Well, to be honest, doing both is probably what most of us try to do. We think, as long as I finish the season by coming to church on Christmas Eve and singing Silent Night, 
then it will all have turned out all right. It's a bit like uh, an Advent deathbed conversion every year. The belief that we can do both rests on the assumption that, for the most part, consumer Advent is morally neutral, that taking part in the rituals of the season doesn't form us. It doesn't change what we desire. But week one of the Advent conspiracy suggests that that is not the case. The genius of consumerism is that it shapes us holistically. I'm standing here and talking to you for 20-some minutes this morning, but my influence will be nothing Zippo compared to if you go out this afternoon and take part in our culture's Advent rituals. Victoria's Secret knows exactly what to do, and they do a much better job than I alone can ever do with the, the sights and the sounds and the textures that promise an erotically charged transcendence, a picture of what the good life really looks like, of what it means to really be human, carefree and independent, clean and sexy, perky and perfect. And it's a jealous picture. That's the key. It's not satisfied until that vision of what really matters trumps all competing visions. It tolerates no rivals. It's not designed to coexist with Jesus. But then again, neither does Jesus intend to coexist with it. And the solution, I think, is not just to withdraw ourselves from the Advent rituals of our culture and to totally avoid them all and become the Christian Grinch. I think instead, the solution is to engage in our own Advent disciplines and rituals that will form us into the kinds of people that desire the Messiah first rather than the material stuff. The kind of disciplines and rituals that build excitement and anticipation for Jesus instead. And I think the three practices that we see from the Magi here this morning are good places to start. First, sacrificing our time. The Magi make the long and hard journey. It's the discipline of rejecting convenience and immediate gratification and instead building excitement for a goal that is still a long way in the future. Second, bearing the burden of social pressure and stigma. The Magi leave behind Herod, the world's king, in search of the true king. It's the It's the discipline of seeking significance where God has placed it, not where the world has placed it. And frankly, it's the discipline of being willing to undergo some persecution for that decision, for feeling some pain in my life because of the decision I've made to follow Christ. Third, giving away our valuable resources. It's the discipline of sacrificing things that I might be tempted to put my trust in, and therefore I might be tempted to worship. Sacrificing our time, enduring persecution and ostracism, giving money and, giving money and valuable resources. These are the Advent rituals that, over time, I think, will counteract the stylish mannequins, the new car with the bow, and the vision of the good life that we all live in the midst of here during 
the Advent season. Would you join me in prayer? God, we pray now that we would uh, respond to the call to enter into some of these disciplines, to give of our time, to give of our resources, to be willing to be looked down upon in some situations, that these would be disciplines that uh, shape who we are much more so than uh, going to the mall, the commercials, the whole thing that uh, we're immersed in uh, in Christmas time in our culture. We pray that uh, you would strengthen us to know how to wisely navigate these next few weeks and that we would really stay focused uh, the entire time on, uh, on you and uh, your blessing of this world of sending your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.